So we are looking at Psalm 120. I call on the Lord in my distress and he answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from the deceitful tongues. What will he do to you? And what more besides you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom brush. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech and that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. As I mentioned before, we are beginning a new series. We're looking at the Psalms of Ascent, or Ascents, plural sometimes called. And what we're looking here is at the Psalms that the Israelites sung as they went to worship in Jerusalem, three times a year for the festival. All of Jerusalem would walk, all of Israel would walk to Jerusalem to worship together in celebration of the Lord. Now, as we think about these Psalms, I want you to think about what spiritual life is like for us today. There is a great market for what I would call selfish spiritualization or spiritualism, actualization without obedience. Finding the bigness within, not looking for the bigness without. The outside, simply a vehicle of self-discovery, not a source of truth. Instead of looking upward, our spirituality of the modern age tells us to look inwards. And submission seems like it's the enemy of liberation, not the source of freedom. Eugene Peterson put it like this, God can be sold as if, if he is packaged freshly, but when he loses his novelty, it goes quickly to the garbage heap. While there's a great market for religious experience in our world, there is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue on the long apprenticeship towards holiness. Now, I remember this quite clearly. Some of you have heard me tell this story before. When I first graduated as a counsellor and was in my training and was part of the trauma team. And I went to the meeting where they assigned the cases and one of the cases came up that was a Christian who had suffered a significant trauma and the head of the trauma team who knew that I'd graduated from Gordon-Conwell said to me, uh, why don't you take this case because you share the same worldview as this person. And another person in the group who didn't know my history said, I am a really spiritual person too. I find my strength in crystals. Comparing the faith that people put in crystals with the historic, accurate truth of Christianity. Now, I want to be respectful to what she was saying, but it taps into where our cultures got to. Whatever we can use from the outside that somehow gives us more of a perception or a sense of strength or an insight or a sense of self-actualization or self-depth, regardless of any outside truth reference, is what people are making of modern spirituality today. Now, the Psalms of Ascent, which are Psalms 120 through to 134, are a corrective to this. There are 15 of them. And this, they were sung by these Jewish people as they were walking up. And they walked, these roads were hard. And the reason we call them the Songs of Ascent is because Jerusalem was the highest city in Israel. So you were always walking up to Jerusalem. And this journey would take a long time and you walked on dangerous and hard roads. But whilst you were walking on those roads, you reflected on your faith. You sung these songs. 
And it's worth knowing that these songs come in sets of three. There are 15 of them and they come in five sets of three. And each set of three starts with the acknowledgement of what's wrong. Something in this world really sucks and we're living in a bad place right now. The second psalm is, says God is here to help you. In some way, God is going to help you through the now. And the third psalm in the series of three says, okay, stop for a minute and just reflect on who God is and what God's kingdom is. So you could, if you were looking for a nice, easy way to remember these sets of three, the reality of the hassle, the reality of the help, and the reality of heaven. And these psalms, there's five sets of these psalms, all look at them. And today, we're starting, jumping into the series with Psalm 120. Now, this is the first, which means it's the reality of the hassle. This is no victory psalm. This is not going to ring great victories. What it's going to do is to introduce us to the reality of the hassles, spiritually and, and in the broader sense of the word spiritually, in terms of the way people live their life in Israel, and it has a lot of application to us as well. And we're going to look at this sermon in three distinct parts. We're going to look at it in reverse order. We're going to look at the end, verses 5 to 7, which I'm calling the problem, with the tagline, did you even know there was one? And then looking at verses 3 to 4, the final solution, where God finally, how God finally deals with this, which the tag for that one is, what we are patiently waiting for, and then verses 1 and 2, the coping strategy. And do you, invade, do you engage in this? So I encourage you, if you can, to get a pew Bible out as we go through this uh, and look at Psalm 120 as we work through this. And we're beginning, as I said, in verses 5 through 7 with the problem. Let me read that again. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. So these people on this journey of ascent to Israel, these uh, people are describing the messiness of the climb, in a sense. They're on a journey to Jerusalem, but they're describing the world around them. Meshech is the farthest north in the known world, and Kedar is the furthest south. This is a way of saying in Hebrew, the known world, or the world at the time. So they're saying here, the world, the world is, uh, has deceitful lips. The, the world, um, uh, woe to me because I live amongst the, the world of deceitful lips and lying, lying tongues. I love peace, but when I speak, they are for war, for war. And he's describing there what it's like to live in the world around Israel. And the word dwell here and live here, they are sojourner words. So when he says, woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, what he's really saying is, woe to me that I have to pass through, that I have to journey through. And woe to me that I... Uh, that I live among the tents of Kedar, again, that I had to stay in a bed and breakfast or I had to pass through that part of town. So what he's really saying here is that, look, I'm for peace, but I have to live in a world that isn't for peace. I have to live in a world 
that whenever I say anything, whenever I proclaim peace, turns back to me and tries to create war. Have you ever met anybody who's like that, who's completely disagreeable? You say one thing and then they say something back, right? It's almost like they want to be contrarian. They want to make life difficult. Uh, have you ever been in a workplace where you say, let's do this? So it says, no, let's do that, right? And you can escalate that from words to the workplace, uh, to the playground fight, to skirmishes, to conflicts around the world. What they're saying here is, look, I speak peace. I speak about true peace. And when I do, I come across, at the best, disagreeable words, oppression, mocking, threats, violence. And he's, being, he's asking in verse 2 and 3 to be saved from these lying lips, from these deceitful tongues that contradict his peace all the time. Now, he's not being intolerant here. He's for peace. He's not being tolerant of a worldview that says any path leads to reunification with Yahweh. But he's also not saying or forcing anyone to go outside their own beliefs. He's just saying, these are what I believe, and I'm on the journey. Maybe I'm inviting you to be part of the journey. I'm acknowledging the sovereign God, and when I do that, you stand against me. You make things different. You're not tolerant. Or worse than that, you're oppressive, or you're mocking, or you're violent. And it's the words. There's something about the words behind this that are causing distress for him. Now, I've been listening recently to some old sermons by a British preacher. And I can't believe I'm even using the word old because they were actually from the 1990s, which really doesn't feel that long ago to me. <laughs> Thank you. It's actually a series of sermons about the lies of Satan. And it's very much like the screw tape letters, for those of you who've read the screw tape letters. It's about how Satan attacks from the inside and attacks from the outside. How these lying lips and deceitful tongues corrode and get in the way of us as we sojourn. And so let's break them up into those two pieces, the lies from within. And actually, the British preacher who talks about this, he describes this in an interesting way. He says, how do you set up a cult? How would you set up a Christian cult? How would you derail a church and set up a Christian cult? And he starts by saying, it's really easy. What you do is you go and find all the verses in the Bible that promise fulfillment, and then you say, this cult promises that fulfillment now. Come and join us. It says, are your relationships not working? Look at Isaiah 11 with the lion lies down with the lamb. Why aren't your relationships like that? And in fact, let me read that to you because it's really impressive and I wish my relationships were like this. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed the bear and the young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play in the cobra's den and the young child will put his hand in the viper's nest. Are all your friendships and relationship with neighbors and work colleagues like that? Do you feel that safe with all the people around you? Why not? 
Maybe you should come and join a Christian cult which promises to make things like that. Or what about struggling with sin? 1 John 3, 6 says that anyone who sins doesn't know me. Clearly then, we are not Christians, right? If we look at those, that particular text. What about not always being joyful? What about John 15, verse 11? So that your joy may be complete. So here we are, sinful, unjoyful people with marginal relationships. What about success? Has any of you read the, uh, the verses at the end of Job? The Lord gave him twice as much as before. Why isn't our wealth and our prosperity, why isn't it doubling? Why aren't we looking like, and of course the answer is, because we are on a journey. And these promises of complete fulfillment are, are really deceptions. They're lies. There is an experience and a taste, a foretaste of God's goodness that comes. And certainly by living in obedience to him, we experience his blessings. But this picture of fulfillment that we find in Scripture belongs to God in the fullness of the coming kingdom and will not be realized by us until then. And so we live in this tension, this time when we walk and things are hard, where we sojourn, where we journey, and things are up and down and they are hard. And Satan sells us these lies. He sells us the lie of the spiritual vacation. Come and join my cult. And you can have the full fulfillment of the coming kingdom right now. Strangely, a very, very similar promise to the one he made Jesus when he, in, the, in the garden. Or, and, and you know what? People are buying it. He's saying, Satan is selling a spiritual vacation, not a spiritual journey, and people are buying it. People are leaving the church because they're looking for the quick and easy fix. They're not looking for the grace experienced in the long walk of obedience, motivated purely out of relationship with God. So that's the lies from within. What about the lies from within, without? How does Satan work to make God culturally irrelevant? Now, our culture does this subtly, right? It erodes truth. It makes faith innocuous and irrelevant. The world wants to tell us who we are without asking the question of our creator and our sustainer. It's like it can answer those questions without going back and saying, who made these people and how did he make them and why did he make them? It tells us, interestingly enough, that time belongs to us. Our time belongs to us. Do you know the average American spends three minutes a day on faith practice? Three minutes a day. I can't even imagine how little time that is. It takes me longer than that to make a cup of coffee. Now, here's the problem, right? I'm not saying that you should, that there's actually a problem with the three minutes. I'd love people to pray for three minutes a day. My problem is that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that time belongs to God. And so all of the other things I'm about to go through, if we thought like that, if we thought, oh, all my time belongs to God, how I use it really matters. I'm on a journey, a sojourn, I'm a pilgrim then we wouldn't be just thinking, okay, I've done my three minutes of add-on faith. I've done my tack on religion. I've integrated that little piece. Now let's get on with life. I'd be saying, no, all of life 
Every single square inch belongs to God. Now what's, okay, three, three minutes a day, but what's the message? The message is that, isn't it? You tack your faith on. You add on a little bit. You do a little bit of praying or you go to church and, and, and that's fine. You've done your bit. You've met your religious obligation. You're, you're a spiritual person. You've done the Christian duty. You've made it. It's such a distortion. It makes it irrelevant. It makes it secondary. We belong here and we add this little bit of ethereal spirituality onto the side. That's not true. We are aliens here. We are pilgrims here. And our mindset needs to be how we use our time for the Lord in every way. Faith is not an add-on. It is incarnate. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? It means that all our time belongs to God. And we're always thinking about how do I use this time for God? Which, of course, means we eat and we sleep and we play and we work, but we do it for the Lord. It all belongs to God. Let's talk about sex and drugs. Did you know that 19 out of 20 people engage in premarital sex? Now, I'm not interested in making some sort of moral statement here. What I am trying to say is that people here are rejecting, they're snubbing God's blessings. Right? God sets up these rules in order for people to live the most fulfilling, satisfying life that they can. Same with drugs. When people destroy their bodies or, or use drugs abusively, what they're doing is snubbing God's blessing. They're turning their nose up to God and saying, I actually think I know how to run this situation better than you. It's not some cheap moral, uh, moral just like uh, stepping over some moral line that matters here. Do you realize you're snubbing the living God who wants to bless you? who wants you to be a pilgrim on the journey, who invites you into that. And you say, you know what? I prefer to do this my way. And the message is that's okay, right? The message is one of hubris, demanding immediate gratification, doing what you want when you want, and thinking that you actually know better for yourself than God knows. What about money? Forget about tithing. Let's just talk about giving just to any charity, do you know that less than half the population in the United States, the, one of the richest nations in the world, give any money to charity each year? Now, that means half does, which is pretty good. But, and the point here is not so much that I, I want to guilt people into giving more money to the church or to charity. What I'm trying to say here is that we've missed the point that we're sojourners on a journey, that we're pilgrims, that we're, that we're blessed when we sit within God's place of obedience. And the culture is telling us that that's okay. I remember when we first got married and we talked about the way we managed our finances, we talked about tithing. Some of our family was horrified. What? It's okay to give a few dollars to the church, but you can't give 10% to the church. That's a horrible thing to do. Think of your children. Think of your retirement. Put all those other things, instead of organizing or living your life, and by the way, you do need to think about your children and your retirement. There's nothing wrong with those things, but you need to be living your life in balance. Because guess what? Spending money on your children and, and on your retirement is being faithful to God. I still remember 
when we first started North Point. And at that time, we were starting to get leaders in different groups. And I, and I will tell you this because they use this in their testimony. And they're now pastors, uh, the two of them as a couple. They set up our missions team. And I went to talk to them as they were becoming, uh, as they were becoming members. And they wanted to impress me, I guess. And so they said, you know, we're really good Christians. We read our Bible regularly and we do all this. And we tithe. And off the cuff, I just said, well, what do you do with the other 90%? Like, that's God's money too, you know. And I didn't think anything else of it. Maybe that was a little uh, abrasive thing to say. But it was mostly just in conversation in the membership interview. But then when they set up the missions team, they, in their testimony, they brought up that conversation. And they said that that completely changed the way they looked at their faith. They suddenly realized that you don't slice it down the middle. You don't put 10% over here for God and the other 90% is yours. You don't do that with your time. You don't do that with the way you uh, behave sexually. You don't do that with the way you use your body. All of it belongs to God. We're not on vacation. We're sojourners. We're on a journey. The journey isn't a part-time activity. It's our full-time missional calling. Power. Do you know that in the United States, two out of three people see power as being threatening and disturbing? I mean, maybe that's a statement on our current political system. But doesn't that speak to how people use power? What's the message our culture says? Use it for your own gain. Use it for what you can get out of it. Use it to establish what you can for yourself. And it's no wonder that people are afraid of it, that they don't believe in the checks and balances are working anymore, because people seem to have written into our cultural narrative that you should use your power for your own gain, that you should use it for your benefit, to build your kingdom, not to build God's kingdom. So all of these things, right? Time, our body with sex and drugs, our money, our power. Satan is selling distraction here, right? Oh, use your time for whatever you want, whatever makes you feel good today. Indulge in sex or drugs because it'll make you feel good, right? Money, put it away, build up a great big nest egg or invest in whatever you want to. Uh, make sure you build your security here rather than thinking about how is God calling me to do it. Now, God does call us to be mature and to be responsible and be sensible with our money. But he calls us to do that in submission, not to, to look after ourselves, use our own strength and our own perception of our capacity, and then whatever's left over, left over give it to God. That's Satan's lie. That's a distraction. And the other thing he does is he sells the personal path, right? Oh, things aren't great. Things are hard, right? It's a messy world. There are lying lips. There's real suffering. Guess what? You've got the money. You've got the resources. You've got the power. You have a personal pass. You can, you can build a little hedge around yourself. You can protect yourself from the things that are getting in the way. You can make yourself safe. You can use the blessings you have to bless yourself, regardless of how it impacts other people. So Satan is selling a lot of things, the spiritual vacation inside the church. He's selling the distraction and the personal path to get out of the messiness from outside the church. And these are subtle messages 
that we hear all the time. These are subtle messages that tell us that if we do anything different, we're weird, that we're odd. We live an alien truth if we are pilgrims. We say that we have different priority systems, that we trust in the Lord rather than ourselves. And that changes the way we think. We are aliens living in an alien land. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, not the citizens of the kingdom of this world. And we need to see it that way and live that way. And we should expect that this is going to cause conflict, that lying lips and deceitful tongues are going to tell us we're crazy, that that's off the wall, that that doesn't make any sense, that you're being irresponsible, that your priorities don't make sense. And they don't. They don't fit in this culture. But they do make sense as pilgrims journeying to the New Jerusalem. So that's the question, isn't it? The culture says it's okay to make a nod to spirituality, but don't dare die to it, don't dare submit to it or live for it. And that's the question for us. Are we living as an alien on a journey or are we buying a substitute from Satan? Are we buying a vacation, a spiritual vacation or a distraction from the mess or the brokenness? or a personal path from the mess of the brokenness. And here's the question. Do you know that that problem exists? Are you struggling with that? Do the lies of the culture resonate with you? Or do you just think, oh, things are pretty good? Has the conviction of the Holy Spirit moved your heart to realize that you live in a world of deceitful tongues and lying lips? And they are sending messages to you which distract you from walking on the pilgrimage to the New Jerusalem. So we're going to jump back now a couple of verses to verses 3 and 4. The final solution. And I guess the question I want you to think of is, do you have the expectation that this is coming? So the final solution. Verses 3 and 4. And here's the psalmist convicting those with lying lips and deceitful tongues. What will he do to you? And what more besides you deceitful tongues? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of broom bush. Now what is going on here? Satan may be a good salesman, but he's adding to the brokenness and the mess. And God is not okay with this. The psalmist asks the question rhetorically in verse 3, what's God going to do with it? And then there's two clear answers here, two clear punishments that are laid out here. He's going to punish you in two ways, and this is a form of Hebrew parallelism, which restates and adds two. The first one is warrior's sharp arrows, and the second one is burning coals of the broom bush. Now this warrior's sharp arrows is a reference back to Psalm 64. And if you read that psalm, you'll see it's all about people standing and hiding and trying to sabotage those who are good and righteous with arrows and with deceitful lies and tongues and accusations. And in that psalm, what happens is the violence is turned back on them. The accusations they level at God's people are leveled back at them. When you reject the sovereign God and creator, creator being the owner, 
right? We belong to God and the sustainer. He sustains us and keeps us. It's a form of treason. And if you're, you're no longer, you're rejecting your citizenship, right? You'll no longer be sustained. You're saying, I don't want to be owned by you and I don't want to be sustained by you. And guess what? God holds the whole world together. And when you reject his sustenance, the consequence is death. And that's the promise in Genesis to the people of God. When you reject, reject, my, when you reject me, the consequences of that is death. The natural consequences of rejecting the one that sustains you is death. And there's a justice there. In Psalm 64, it's saying you'll reap what you sow. You shoot the arrows, they're going to turn around and hit you. You make the accusations, they're going to turn around and be directed at you. So the first piece of the judgment is you'll reap what you will sow, and that will be just. And the second here is the burning coals of the broom brush, bush. Sorry. Now, a broom bush was the wood that made the best coals the most perfect coals, the coals that hold, held the most heat and were the most effective in making furnaces and uh, different things uh, that, that they used for, for daily purposes, right? So, it's, it, so the broom bush wood made the best coal. In other words, in terms of judgment, it was the most righteous, the most honest, the most fair judgment. In other words, this is a picture of God's judgment. So what are the consequences of these deceitful tongues, these lying narratives that run through our culture? That they are going to be on the receiving end of God's judgment, which is death, which is destruction, which is damnation, whether we like it or not, and that is reaping what you sow, rejecting the sustainer. Now, God's judgment, as we see here, will be applied from Meshach to Kedar, in other words, to these narratives of the world and to those that propagate these narratives of the world, the ones that get in the way of the pilgrim, that can distract the pilgrim. And this judgment, it makes things right. It finally will bring an end to homesickness or living in alien territory, and here's the question, I guess, that we need to ask ourselves first. Do you want to be God's enemy? Do you want to re reject the creator and the sustainer? <coughs> but there's another question in this too, and it's important to see this. The psalmist is actually addressing this question to the world, to those in the world. He's saying to them, and as, as we should say to those around us, do you want God to be your enemy? Do you want God to be the enemy to you? want God to be the enemy of your family or your friends or your colleagues. So being an alien pilgrim in this land means inviting other people to be alien pilgrims. It means saying, if you care about them, don't buy these narratives. Right? So it's no wonder that when he speaks peace, when he says, this is peace, being reconciled with God, this is peace, being a pilgrim, being an alien pilgrim walking to the new Jerusalem, that the people reject it. But the people also need to hear it. So being an alien pilgrim, it's not surprising that you run into conflict because you're sharing the message of the gospel. And the gospel isn't always well received. But you're living it faithfully as an alien pilgrim. 
It's part of the way you do things. It's your 100%, seven, 24 hours, 7 way of thinking. So two questions. There's a warning to the world. They may not like it, but they need to hear it. So the first question is, do you see the beauty and the justice in this judgment? The world is put to right. Do you see the terror and the absoluteness in this judgment? There's a call to invite others on our alien pilgrimage as we pass through this land, through this time. Okay, so things are pretty messed up, pretty broken. We are going to find ourselves in conflict. The scriptures do not promise that until the final consummation that things are going to be great. In fact, they tell us the opposite. As we preach peace, true peace, as we live peace, as we are faithful sojourners, as we are pilgrims in an alien land, as we invite other people to pilgrim with us, we are going to find opposition, struggles, distractions, attempts of Satan to disrail us. You could say that this psalm in verses 1 and 2, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, Lord, from the lying lips and from the deceitful tongues. How do you not fall into the traps of these narratives? right? But let's not lose verse 1. I call on the Lord in my distress. He's distressed. The conflict is causing him great distress. His context, for, a better, for one of a better term, it sucks. He doesn't like it. He wishes it wasn't like that. The psalmist is distressed and he's being persecuted by the lies and deceit of the world, a world that calls evil good and rejects Jesus Christ as the only path to salvation. Now, how does he deal with it? How do we deal with that? Clearly, we aren't in the full consummation of the kingdom of God yet. So it isn't going to be okay tomorrow. The cultish solution doesn't work. Well, he does two things, and we see them both in these verses. First of all, he doesn't deny his distress. Wow. What a wild idea to be honest about our feelings with God. What he's saying is these attacks hurt believers and they really can leave deep scars. The psalmist does not sit there thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not really joyful. Maybe there's something wrong with my faith. Oh my gosh, my relationships are not perfect. Maybe there's something wrong with my faith. He doesn't sit there and say, I'm not being completely successful. I haven't doubled my wealth in the last year. Maybe there's something wrong with my faith. He doesn't say, I'd better put on a brave face and pretend that everything's okay. He's not buying Satan's spiritual vacation narrative. He's not buying into some sort of distraction by some of the glossy tinsel of the world. And he is not using whatever resource he does have to buy a pass from the mess and the brokenness. He seems to know that believers in this world get struck with the same afflictions and that just being a pilgrim is going to lead to persecution, that he's going to get attacked. And he acknowledges the impact of that on him. He embraces his worldly status as an alien on the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He also seems to know that in this hard, 
hurting acknowledgement of the distress, that there's something in that which helps him. And we, you know, we know this is true, but it requires something else. I work at a hospital, as many of you know, and it's a hospital where people regularly die after spending 12, 13, 14, 15 years there. And yet the narrative I hear all the time is that we need to tell them, oh, keep working hard, keep doing what you're doing, and eventually you'll get to leave the hospital and be okay. But there's basically no medical path for that. But we feel like if we don't tell them the truth, there won't be any hope. So we should lie to them. We should say that, and you know, I, I keep on telling the medical doctors, tell them the truth, help them deal with the truth. Let's live in reality. There's a reality here where people, when they face up to that reality, will work out how to deal with it. And maybe they will and maybe they won't. And here's the problem, you need a resource to be able to deal with that sort of reality. We need a coping strategy that's going to help us out of that. Now, similar situations going on. I'm not going to say it's just the Massachusetts health system that has this problem. My sister right now has just discovered that she has uh, cancerous growth on, in her uterus and in her liver and in her lungs. And that's pretty sad and pretty hard. But the thing is, we are too scared, both her and me, to tell my mother because She's my mother's only caregiver living in the country. And my mom is frail and old. And so there's a reality, oh my gosh, what happens when we tell my mother? What happens when my mom has to deal with that reality? If you don't have a resource to deal with that reality, it's pretty tough. So the first thing I want you to notice here is that faithful people are not afraid to acknowledge that things suck and that there's real distress, and that it's hard. And yet somehow, without moving into a place of denial, without running away from the hardness, they find a resource. Hardship without denial requires some really meaningful pathway, or otherwise your distress leads to despair. And we see that in verse, Lord, uh, sorry, in verse 1. I call on the Lord in my distress. I call on the Lord in my distress. So what's going on here? The distress is driving him into the arms of God. He's praying. The persecution is helping him to turn back to God. He calls out in verse 2, Save me, Lord, from the lying lips and the deceitful tongue. Don't let me fall into the trap that there's some distraction that I can apply to this or that I can use my resource uh, to get a pass to avoid this, or that I can buy into some uh, cult uh, cultish, everything's going to be okay tomorrow narrative. He says, save me from a culture that calls evil good and ridicules absolute truth. When you acknowledge your distress, what you're doing is you're recognizing your dependency on God. And there's only one place to go, and that is to God. And here's the deal. How, dis how much you don't turn or fall into despair depends on how big God is. And so you need to recognize 
God as creator and sustainer, as the writer of the narrative, of, of, of the story of redemption. And you're on the journey. You're a pilgrim to the new Jerusalem. So you let your distress drive you into God's arms. You let your distress drive you to your knees. You let your distress drive you back under God's wing. You find your emotional and relational and covenantal strength by leaning into God. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't suck. It still sucks. It's still hard. But when you do that, you don't have to carry the burden alone. You don't have to believe in your own self-reliance that you can solve the problem. You're trusting the sovereign God, the creator, the sustainer, the writer of history. Your hope is as big as God is, not as big as you are. And believe me, when the world around you is collapsing, you realize you aren't very big and you need a big God. Now, if you had the bulletin today, you would see that the title of the sermon is Repentance. Where is repentance in this, right? So metanoia is the Greek word for repentance. You've heard me mention that before. Meta meaning great. Noia meaning... You could say it's a great mental shift, mental turn. It's a turn, which leads to a turn in behavior. Noia meaning thinking or thought, right? So what we're saying is there's a great reorientation. Repentance is a lifestyle. It's a constant reorientation from resident of this world to alien in this world. From vacationer to pilgrim. It's a constant reorientation from the way we use money, power and status to buy ourselves a personal pass to how we use money, power and status to be a blessing, to be walking on that pilgrimage to the new Jerusalem. So actually, this psalm is all about repentance. It's all about realizing we are pilgrims. We are pilgrims in an alien land walking to a new Jerusalem and we have a call to invite those people around us to join us on that pilgrimage. So God is asking us to go on a humble journey of hardship. To face reality and give up distractions and personal passes. Why is he asking us to do that? Because he's declared as citizens of his kingdom. We no longer belong to those who have lying lips and deceitful tongues. We no longer belong to those who shoot arrows. We no longer belong to those facing the burning coals of the broom bush. We are being called to walk a hard journey for sure, but we are being called to walk from Meshech to Kedar, Meshech and Kedar to Jerusalem, from brokenness and chaos and mess into the coming kingdom, the new Jerusalem, into joyful, brokenless shalom. Now, journey is only possible because Jesus chose to take a different journey, leaving his throne room with his father and entering into our squalor and our mess and our brokenness to fix it. And not with hard work, but with his life. The Son of God, God himself, humbled himself unto death so that we could walk this journey. And I'm just going to read from Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. 
He was by nature God. He did not consider equality with God as a prize to be displayed, but he emptied himself by taking the nature of a servant. When he was born in human likeness and his appearance was like that of any other man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do not buy cheap spiritual vacations. Don't look for cheap worldly distractions. Don't use your money and power and status to try to create a personal pass from suffering. Remember your status as a citizen of his kingdom. We are aliens in a foreign land joining together in pilgrimage on our way home to the new Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for these Psalms of Ascent. We thank you that they are words to sing. We thank you that it is your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who first invited us on this pilgrimage and made that possible with his life, Father. Help us to see the beauty of that sacrifice. Help us to contextualize our journey in light of his journey. We ask these things for your glory and in your name. Amen.